Greetings, everyone. My name is David Armstrong. This is the Inside ETFs podcast. I'm the editor of wealthmanagement.com. And today I'm speaking with Chris Davis, the CEO of Davis Advisors. Chris, thanks very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, David. Before we uh, jump into talking about the markets, talking about what you all do there, give us a bit of a one-on-one on Davis Advisors for folks who don't know. Well, we've been in business a long time. We, we've been managing money on behalf of clients for more than half a century with the single-minded goal of building generational wealth. And we have characteristics of being research-driven, true active manager. We buy and hold for the long term, and we use a research driven approach. And and I think one of the things that really distinguishes us, David, is that really the largest clients and virtually all of the funds that we manage are our family and our employees. So we really eat our own cooking. So it's a mindset of building generational wealth over the long term by owning equities uh, that are identified in a highly selective research driven way. Well, that's great. That's great. And active in the exchange traded fund space, ETFs, that's your favorite mode of distribution? Well, I think one of the most extraordinary things was, you know, we started historically and as institutional advisors, we uh, built up a really core business in traditional mutual funds. And then more than a number of years ago, maybe half a decade ago, we had some advisors come to us and say that they were increasingly finding that ETFs worked well in their practice. And given that we are generally large cap with low turnover, long-term time horizon, would it be possible for us to offer our services in a full, truly transparent ETF, not one of these hybrid models. And and we looked out at it. We were surprised that nobody else had done it. We felt we had a sort of a perfect Goldilocks setup in that we were large enough to have the scale to do this, but we were small enough that we didn't have to worry about huge liquidity effects. We have a culture of transparency, and that mattered a lot to us. And, And of course, we have a network of having built our firm over five decades decades with financial advisors as partners. And so the fact that they wanted them, that we had the capacity to do it, meant that we were, I think, one of really the first firms to offer truly transparent, truly actively managed ETFs with a proven investment style. And and we have over a billion dollars, I think, in those strategies now. And perfect mirrors of our our long-term mutual funds, but they're they're good analogs. We run them with the same investor mindset, the same long-term time horizon. So there are small differences, but they've been really welcomed by advisors. I think the tax efficiency, the liquidity, the ease of transacting, I think it really will be the wave of the future. Although for the first few years, we were out there alone wondering why nobody was following. And now every day, it seems we see more and more traditional mutual fund managers moving in to the ETF space. Yeah, a lot of conversions going on, but you guys were very early in that space. And and I think one of the things that folks were a little bit wary of as an active manager was the transparency of the ETF wrapper. You had to disclose your trades every day. You had to disclose your holdings every day. And I think a lot of active managers are were at a time concerned about that. You guys never, that didn't stop you. What was the what was your thinking? 
Well, it goes back, David, a little bit to the Goldilocks side, which is we're large enough to be able to have the credibility and the systems expertise and the operational excellence to put these into effect. But we're also and to invest behind them. But we're also small enough that the idea of big liquidity effects of people being able to front run and so on uh, just didn't seem to be a, a, a true issue, given that we by and large focus on a large cap space. And even more importantly, David, you know, we have a culture of transparency. We want our clients to know what we own. If we have clients that have an institutional separate account or some sort of separately managed wrap account, they're seeing our trades every day. We have found over offering those accounts in many cases for decades, we haven't seen any uh, ill effects of that transparency. So we feel it's part of our culture and we, we wanted to put it out there. And given that we're large investors in the ETFs and in the funds, we had a hypersensitivity to making sure nobody would be disadvantaged. We're also, David, a low cost place. And that matters because I do think there are a lot of active managers that charge very high fees, and that would make it more difficult to be successful in the ETF space. We've, we've always been a frugal place. We've always been a sort of a value-oriented operation, and, and we've always had relative to our industry, very low management fees. And so that also made it very easy for us to transition into the ETF space. Yeah. And before we get into just a broader conversation about the, the markets and what you're seeing out there, the SEC has approved, obviously, non-transparent active ETFs. What do you think about that? Do you think that works for some asset managers? It doesn't sound like that's something that you'd be interested in doing. Well, we looked at them. It seemed very cumbersome and very confusing. We felt like when we think about why advisors want ETFs. Of course, there's the ease of transactions. There's the potential tax advantages and so on. But of course, one of the reasons is often that they like the transparency. So we felt it was something that addressed some of the advisor interest, but not really addressed it in a, in a complete way. So we, we looked at them. We couldn't find a structure to us that seemed to make uh, sense. We thought it was going to be a little bit of a uh, confusing proposition to traditional ETF users. And what we found with our ETFs is we originally started it because we had traditional financial advisors who had used mutual funds traditionally who were interested in ETFs. So it came out of our core. But then we also unexpectedly, after our first year or so, started finding what I'll call traditional ETF users that had mostly been in index products who started thinking about the idea that there are periods of time when active management really comes into favor and you get times where active managers outperform passive and so on. And so they wanted to reserve a place in their portfolio for true active management, these traditional ETF investors. And we felt for them, having some sort of hybrid model was also going to be confusing at that end. So we've been very pleased with how it has worked out, the existence proof of them and the reception they've had both from our traditional advisors who have been with us for decades, but also from traditional ETF advisors who historically haven't really used to active management. Mm -hmm. uh, you, your strategies are, are, are broad, large cap, core strategies. Is that how you find most advisors are using Davis funds? 
I would say, David, that really we've had the dramatic interest both in what I'll call core large cap, but we also have a financial ETF. And, you know, one of the interesting things about the financial indices, I started a financial focused mutual fund, a sector fund. Believe it or not, it's hard for me to even say this out loud, David, 30 years ago. And uh, I've run it for most of the time since then. And that fund has not only outperformed the S&P 500, it's also outperformed the financial indexes. So it's really built a strong long-term record. So I think financial stocks is an area where we have a lot of credibility and a lot of history. So in launching DFNL, which was a financial sector ETF that's truly actively managed, we felt that there was going to be an opportunity to add value over the indexes over a long period of time. Now, in that sector, when financial stocks are hot, often we are more cognizant of risk. So, as I mentioned in our mutual fund, which is not identical, but to use it as sort of an analog, you know, that mutual fund outperformed in part by having a lot less downside in periods of time when there was stress in the financial system. So, we like the value proposition that we're offering of to have a financial services ETF where we really think about risk, we manage it like it's our own money, and we like the idea of competing with an index that is very top heavy. I, I could be wrong about this, but speaking from memory, I think four or five stocks are about 10, 40%, 40% of the financial index. So people, when they buy an index fund or an index-based ETF, probably think they're getting a lot more diversification than they are. And so we like having a financial services ETF that has more diversification than the index, and yet is based on a strategy and a competency where we've been able to build value over time. Then where we've really seen traction, David, has been global and international. So we have Davis Select Worldwide, which is DWLD, and Davis Select International, D-I-N-T. The latter only owns companies listed outside the U.S. The former is truly global, so it can own a mix of U.S. and international securities. But what we found there is that over time, there are many, many, many active managers that have outperformed the global and international indexes. Those global and international indexes tend to be way skewed to state-run enterprises, you know, these huge utilities, huge financial sector, lots of businesses that at one time or another in these global markets had been owned or controlled by the state. So, active management has really been an area internationally and globally where, where you can add value. So, in outside of the US, active management has been a tremendous value proposition. So we have found in the ETF space, people have a real interest in having exposure to active management when they consider global or international investing, because the indexes have over time produced a substandard result compared to active managers. So we think that's another area to really add value and one where we've had a very been very pleased with the reception. Yeah, yeah, and and this is it strikes me that this is a, you know, in this ever present debate about index versus active, index the weightings tend to dominate the index, right? I mean, the, the large companies, even in the S and P five hundred, right? I mean, there's four or five companies there that kind of really lead the entire index. Uh, 
And is, is this is this a problem with index investing? Should this be something about? Well, it's it's over time. Indexes are terrific because the costs are low. They never sell a winner. There are many things that are very good about index investing. Over time, we've added value over the indexes by being willing to look different and by being highly selective. You know, in the U.S we might reject 90% of the companies in the S&P 500. And by doing so, we are able to sort of rifle shoot just those businesses where we get what we think of as the best of both worlds, which has been over the last five years, for example, above average growth in earnings, and yet they trade at a below average valuation. And that's even more so globally. But what I would say is that at a time when you're in a rampant sort of bull market with a lot of momentum investing, the indexes tend to do very well. But what we've learned over five decades of investing is you can go through many, many long periods uh, in which the index just gets killed. And yet somehow active managers are able to really add value. Let me give you an example. In the late 90s, there were active managers that had underperformed for five, seven, 10 years. I, I remember a manager we admired greatly who ran a mutual fund called Clipper Fund that was had been behind it by the end of the 90s for 17 years. Right now, that sounded terrible, but it was really only this last five years where you had gotten this huge dispersion. Well, 2000 came along and just speaking to our traditional mutual funds, we didn't have the ETFs then. But, you know, our traditional large cap domestic mutual fund was up 9% or 10% when the market was down 9 or 10%. Mm. So you had these huge spreads, 1,800, 1,900, 2,000 basis points of outperformance by active managers. So even if you had predicted, oh, 2,000 is going to be a terrible bear market, get out of stocks, that was the wrong conclusion. The right conclusion was to avoid those parts of the market that were grossly overvalued and to stick with active managers that were able to avoid the big momentum that had been driving results, had been driving the performance of the market, had made the index very top heavy. But what happened is when that corrected, the, you had this wonderful period where active managers were generating substantial positive returns. And and yet the market was in a bear market. That is the sort of scenario I can imagine now. I mean, David, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you'd like to go through an example, but I, I, I think this idea of dispersion can really create opportunity. And so you can have a paradox like we had in the late 90s, like we have today, where the market as a whole may be very richly valued. And yet you can build a select portfolio of companies that are significantly undervalued, both relative to the market, relative to their own histories, relative to their growth rates by being selective, by not having to have this sort of cap weighted mindset and this momentum mindset. And that's, that's really the opportunity we see today across our strategies, global, international and domestic. Well, I was going to ask about that because uh, it, it strikes me that we maybe are in a similar position today than we were in, in you know, 99, 2000. I, and I, don't know how active managers do it, frankly, today, because valuation metrics, as we all traditionally understand them, seem to be just thrown out the window. You can throw darts at the at the page of the Wall Street Journal and everything's going to go up. How does an investor make sense of the market today? Well, the great opportunity 
David, is created when you get huge dispersion or huge divergence, right? So think about over the last five, the last 10 years, you've had a huge dispersion between growth and value, for example. You've had a huge dispersion between domestic and international. So as value investors, contrarian investors, true active managers, we love that because what that means often is that you are able to buy more dollars of earnings at a much cheaper price. And over time, that should work out. So I'm going to give you a concrete example. And, and for the people listening, it, this we could get out a piece of paper and jot these numbers down. It'll sort of blow your mind. But if I was to take five of the current big market darlings, you know, Tesla, Square, Shopify, Spotify, and Zoom. Mm -hmm. Today, those five companies have a market cap of about 1.3 trillion. So if somebody uh, came into a big chunk of money and they all of a sudden found themselves with $1.3 trillion, they could buy 100% of those five companies. Now, for the same $1.3 trillion, they could buy a pretty good cross-section of our portfolio. So these are the companies that you could buy for the same $1.3 trillion. American Express, Bank of New York, Applied Materials, Chubb, JP Morgan Chase, Raytheon, Capital One, and Intel. Mm. $1.3 for those companies versus, I'll call that section group two. Group one was these growth darlings that are in the spotlight today. Now, same price, right? $1.3 In that first group of the growth darlings, you get today, this year, about $9 billion of earnings. So think of that if you bought it all, you're getting about eight-tenths of 1% of your money generated in earnings each year. In that second group, you're getting about 90 billion, 10 times as much, or about an 8% or so earnings yield. So you're getting 8% every year. Now, I hear what you're about to ask is you're gonna say, oh yes, yes, but, but isn't that first group of companies you're getting less today because they're growing so fast. And the answer is, of course they are. But let's quantify that because growth is a component of value. Companies that grow profitably are more valuable than companies that don't grow. But you can overpay for growth. So here's what I mean by that. David, let's take that group one and let's imagine that in the next 10 years, they grow as fast as Google, Apple, and Amazon grew in the last 10 years, right? Now, we know that was a glorious time for Google, Amazon, and Apple. So we're going to say these companies, we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. They grow for the next decade. They grow as fast as Apple, Amazon, and Google grew in the last 10 years. And then we're going to make a second assumption. We're going to say, and let's imagine the best case scenario that portfolio, those five companies end up with profit margins that are the higher than any of those companies I mentioned. In other words, they are as high as Google. Google has the highest profit margins of Apple, Amazon, and Google. Mm -hmm. So they grow as fast as those three companies did in the last 10 years and the next 10 years. And they end up with after-tax profit margins as high as Google's. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a pretty wonderful scenario, right? Now let's go to group two, right? Those dull, Boring companies I mentioned, JP Morgan, Intel, Chubb, Applied Materials, Raytheon, Bank of New York, American Express Capital One. Let's say that they grow in the next 
10 years, about half as fast as they grew in the last 10, so that their profit growth in the next 10 years is only 5%. So that would be a pretty disappointing outcome, but let's say they only grow 5%. So now what happens over the next 10 years under those scenarios? Well, are you ready for this? The group of companies that we own, that we described there, would generate $1.3 trillion of cumulative earnings. In other words, you would get all of your money back in profits. And in year 10, they would still be earning more each year than that first group of growth darlings. Isn't that amazing? So even under those incredible assumptions, that second group of companies would have only generated after 10 years of high growth with massively expanding profit margins, they still would have only generated about half as much cumulative earnings, and they would still be earning less annually than group two. We don't dispute that they're wonderful companies. We don't dispute that they're growing. What we point out is that the dispersion in their valuation versus the valuation of what we think of as these companies that are either undervalued growth or growing value. You could use either nomenclature, but these sort of steady, relentless, long-term, quiet compounding machines, Mm -hmm. uh, that those are so undervalued relative to the growth darlings that it represents sort of what I call a value investor's dream, where you're able to buy growing companies at, at these unbelievably cheap prices, both relatively, but even absolutely. You make a very good case. And that's a a rational argument. Uh, The only thing I would say about that is that it seems like the markets aren't rational. What do you think about all this, you know, speculative fervor in the markets now? Well, it can go a long time, David. You know, there's a lot of psychology involved. There's a lot of momentum. There's a lot of feedback loops, but that's okay. The good thing is the the, the companies that we own, they, they may not be in favor, but they're building wealth every year, right? They're generating excess cash. They're paying dividends. So in a sense, we're getting paid to wait. I think the cautionary tale in what you suggest is really important, which is I would not short the other side, right? The fact that there's a lot of things that are overvalued, a lot of momentum, some really nonsensical valuations. Now, somebody might say, well, how about if I short group one and just long group two? Won't that be great? The truth is, I I think it would be great with one exception. And that's, David, exactly what you imply. The old saying, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. Mm. So once you're short, you can be short something that's overvalued and it doubles or triples, and all of a sudden you're broke because you're having to post collateral. So I think whether it was the meme stocks, whether it's some of these momentum growth darlings, things can be overvalued and still double or triple. I would be very wary that stating something is overvalued is not the same as saying, I I think you should short it. So on that side of the market, I think you're right. The irrationality can persist, And I would be very careful of playing that game. On the other side, you're getting paid to wait. They're wonderful businesses producing a lot of cash, paying dividends. They've shown their resilience through the financial crisis, through the COVID crisis. These are durable businesses, many of which have been around in business for a century or more. So you have, when you think of that list of the types of businesses that we buy, the first word that comes to your mind is durability. And the great thing about durability is it gives you the option to wait, 
right? Mm -hmm. You don't have to hit the load tick. You don't have to, but you have the option to wait because you know that they're going to be in there. And that, that really segues, David, to a really important point, which is in a market where there's a lot of labels, like somebody could walk away from listening to the two of us talk and say, okay, so I guess what Chris was saying is buy value, avoid growth. And I would say absolutely not. What I'm saying is that these labels are creating crazy behavior on both sides. So we just went through a great example on what I'll call the growth equation, which is I highlighted a a portfolio of companies that I think are grossly overvalued, even though they're good businesses. Mm -hmm. Their stock prices are grossly overvalued. I reread recently a wonderful interview with Scott McNeely that he gave in 2002 after his stock was down. I forget how much, but let's say, you know, 70 or 80 percent. And in the interview, he said, what the hell were you thinking buying our company? At What, what were people thinking buying our company at 10 times revenue? Mm-hmm. In order to get people their money back, we would have had to pay out 100% of, of sales as profits for the next 10 years to get people their money back. We would have had to have had zero R&D, zero labor costs, zero material costs, paid zero taxes just to get you your money back. What were you thinking? Similarly, there's that component in the growth universe that we talked about is significantly overvalued. On the other hand, there are companies that we consider undervalued growth. So if you avoid these speculative growth, the growth pretenders, within the growth category, there are some wonderful, durable blue chips, tech blue chips. We call them the blue chips of tomorrow. But you just think about some of the companies I mentioned, like Intel and Applied Materials. Those are growth companies. Google. Facebook currently trading at about, I don't know, 16 times earnings or something. Of course, there's going to be regulatory changes just the way there were for Microsoft and, and they'll put them in place and so on. But you're, you are buying a, some wonderful companies and whether it's Google or, or Facebook or Applied or Intel or Texas Instruments and also, by the way, abroad, some of the, the wonderful, durable Chinese growth companies like JD.com or, you know, even Alibaba. I think they're are great opportunities to buy undervalued growth within the category that also includes speculative growth. Then flip to the other side, David, if people come away and saying, oh, well, what I heard is sell growth by value, I would say no, no, because within value, there's also a very speculative category. And we call this this deep cyclical value. We call them value traps. You may get them right, but you better hope you get the timing right because they're terrible businesses where time works against you. They're often over levered. They're super cyclical. If you get another downturn, if we get unexpected, massive second or third wave of COVID or something like that, mm-hmm. geopolitical events. These are companies that if, if the, the financing market shut down or the economy slows down, you lose a lot of money. So they're considered, quote, value names, but we think of them as value traps. So instead of looking at value just as an index, we look at what we call growing and durable value. So some of the companies I mentioned, Capital One, Berkshire Hathaway, JP Morgan, Chubb, so on. But I would also mention some of the great global names, you know, the Development Bank of Singapore, DBS, one of the great well-capitalized financial institutions in the world, the largest bank in Norway, DNB, 
some companies like Quest Diagnostics or Viatris, a sort of an unloved pharma company. So within the value camp, there's a if you avoid value traps, there's a, a category called growing value. So our portfolio is sort of growing value and undervalued growth. Avoid both avoid the labels, avoid the indexes, and look for sort of what makes sense within putting both those categories together. So anyway, I, I hope that that's yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that uh, it strikes me that that uh, for active managers such as yourself, the Morningstar style box doesn't do us any favors. No, no, it's it's useful as a description of where somebody is finding opportunity. It's cancerous if it's viewed as a prescription. You should not look outside your box because there are times when all different parts of that those boxes, both here, by the way, and geographically here and abroad. So it's not just growth versus value, maybe domestic versus international. There, look around for where the best investment opportunities are, and then those style boxes may describe where you're finding those opportunities. But boy, if you feel constrained, like oh, I can't. We we used to be very large shareholders of a wonderful company called Bed Bath and Beyond. We sold it many many years ago and bought Amazon. That looked like we were going from value to growth. And we didn't use different metrics. What we realized is Amazon, when we bought it, was trading at one-time sales and was likely to be able to produce easily a 5% profit margin and yet could grow their sales without with negative working capital. So you had a company that was trading at a 20 PE as we adjusted it, but really four or five years ahead would be selling at an 8 PE because the earnings were gonna grow so fast. It was actually more of a value name than a traditional retailer that looked like it was selling at eight times earnings, but five years later was gonna be earning half as much. So it was gonna be at 16 times earnings five years out, and then maybe 30 times earnings five years after that, even assuming they were still around. So that's what I mean about the, the value traps. And you're absolutely right about the style boxes. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about financials. It seems to me that that's a difficult terrain to navigate as well because of the you know, current in, in interest rate environment, monetary policy, fiscal policy. Where, what do you find in financials when you're putting that fund together? I think they are without question the, the greatest opportunity in the market today. For a decade or longer, David, financials, since the financial crisis, the earnings of the financial sector has grown faster than the SP. In other words, the earnings of the financial sector are a larger part of the S&P almost every year for the last decade. And yet the market cap of the financial sector has been a smaller percentage of the S&P 500 every year for the last decade. So you've had an enormous gap. And, you know, I keep going back to that word dispersion. You get this huge dispersion between how financials are valued and how the rest of the market was valued. That gap in a way made sense because people remember the financial crisis. They remember the fear and the terror. They forget that the companies that are out there today are the ones that survived the financial crisis, that behaved well, that had enough capital to get through and weather the storm. But forget turning back the clock. What happened after the financial crisis is just like after the depression and the crash in the late 20s and early 30s, there was a massive wave of new regulation. There was a wave of litigation. There was new cultures put in place. And so after the Great Depression, when the FDIC was created, the 33 Act, the 40 Act, and so on, you know, banks became far safer. And yet everybody remembered the crisis and nobody wanted to invest in them, not just for five years, 
but for 10 years, 15 years. But by the 1950s, David, what happened, believe it or not, is high quality banks, the, the idea changed. The people said the perception is no longer that they're risky, it's that they're boring. And once the view was that they were boring, people started saying, well, they pay a good dividend. They grow at an unexciting rate, but steadily they're paying four or five percent dividends, growing five or seven percent. So the bank index, like good banks were trading at a market multiple 15 times earnings in the 1950s. That's what we see today, David, that people remember the financial crisis. Oh, banks are so risky. They're so dangerous. What do you mean? The banks have twice the capital they had before the crisis. The banks that exist today are all subjected to a stress test that says, what if we went through another financial crisis, but it was a lot worse? Well, guess what? We had one. We had COVID. And that's one of the reasons we were able to be buying banks during the COVID crisis, because we knew the stress tests already showed how different they were, how well capitalized, how risk averse, how strong the credit quality was, how much less leverage there was in the system. They sort of blew through it. So I think we are at a point now where all of the traditional risks of the banking sector, credit, capital, liquidity, are about as low as they've ever been. I think regulatory risk is low. We've gone through the wave of regulation, mm. right? Interest rate risk, that's a traditional risk. It's actually generally favorable to the banking sector. In other words, higher rates, they would earn more money. So they're mm -hmm. at a low valuation, depressed earnings from an interest rate perspective. So we love that they have that going uh, for them. And so the last risk to keep in the back of your mind is technological risk, right? Displacement. A lot of investors in fintech point this out. And we think that is a good thing to be aware of. The banks have been very, very good for 40 years at pulling technology innovation onto their platform. So they've absorbed money market funds and mortgage-backed securities and uh, the junk bond market and internet banks and ATMs and credit card only companies. And look at Venmo. I mean, Venmo is a wonderful service. We all our kids use it. Mm -hmm. But Zelle, which was created by the banks in response, is already bigger than Venmo, which mm -hmm. is hard to believe, but is true. So I think that you put all of those things together. You have a sector with lower risk that has now been tested through the COVID crisis. And I think now, David, we are in what's going to be a half decade or even decade long revaluation where the perception goes from banks are risky to banks are boring. Well, what else is boring? You know what else is boring? Utilities. You know what utility? The utility index today trades at 20 times earnings and the bank index at around 12. So we feel like that's sort of the play. That's one of the reasons we love financials. Now, we've been investing in financials. Actually, my grandfather invested exclusively in financials from 1948 until he died. I started our financial fund all the way back in 1989. We have a big investment in financials in our international, in DWLD, in DINT, in DFNL, Davis Financial, and in DUSA. So, it's a it's a thematic bet and it's not a bet just on oh well we like the financial sector it's a bet that we love it when we can buy a lot of earnings at a low price in a durable business and it's a thematic, yeah it's a thematic bet but do you want to give us just a few names within financials yep 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, I think probably domestically, the cheapest large financial is always going to be the one that makes people a little uncomfortable. So if you went back 10 years ago, the cheapest of the big financials was Bank America. Hmm. It was considered the gang that couldn't shoot straight. They had the biggest regulatory problems through the financial crisis, and they've done a spectacular job since then. You've won twice with Bank America. You've had growing earnings through better management, and you've had a higher value on those earnings. Hmm. Now you'd say, so are you recommending Bank America? No, I want for the next 10 years, what institution is the best positioned from going from a perception that they're the gang that can't shoot straight to being just average to maybe being above average? And I think that's Wells Fargo. Mm. So I think Wells Fargo, you're starting in a depressed valuation with good businesses, good customer retention. They've got a lot of heavy lifting to do in terms of their cost structure getting these regulatory risks behind them. I think they're work, working through them, but it is it is the cheapest of the big banks. And then globally, I would think of things like I mentioned DBS, Development Bank of Singapore, and I mentioned a DNB, the largest bank in Norway, as good examples of steady, overcapitalized compounding machines outside of the US. So those might be some, some good examples of the financial opportunity. No, I like that Wells Fargo call. I think that's interesting. Advisors who are talking to clients every day about this stuff are probably getting a lot of questions about, you know, how come my fund isn't performing as well as the broader markets? I'm seeing all these rocket ships take off. How come I'm not part of that? How can advisors keep their clients on track? How do they, how do they talk to their clients about the long-term prospects? It's a tough job. It is a tough job, David. And you, you really, the we've built our whole firm over five decades in partnership with financial advisors. And we view part of our job as trying to help them do their job, provide materials and insights that will help them with the most important part of their job, which is managing client behavior. I went to the doctor last week and I will say that the most important job of a doctor is not taking your blood pressure. It's trying to modify your behavior trying to convince you to exercise more, to eat better, to drink less, not to smoke. Behavior modification is the biggest impact a doctor can have on his or her clients. And the same is true with financial advisors. And what I would say is there's there's two extremes that really, really put the financial advisor to the test. The two types of markets where they really earn every penny they they deserve every penny they earn are are the times in the market when clients are terrified and fearful and the advisor has to work to manage that fear to keep them from what Jack Bogle used to call the timing and selection penalty firing managers when they're underperforming getting out of the market after it's down but then the other extreme is equally dangerous. It's when it's when clients are overwhelmed with greed. There's a wonderful financial historian named Kindleberger, and he had a great quote, if I can remember it exactly. He said, there's nothing so unsettling to one's good judgment than watching a friend get rich. Uh, and there is something about the view that, oh, you, Mr. Financial Advisor, have been building my wealth at nine, 10, 11% a year compounding steadily, but I got a neighbor that's in something that's up tenfold. I want more of that. 
And so people all of a sudden give up on absolute what we call generational wealth building, and they put their whole plan at risk because they want to go for the short term grand slam. And it's a very, very precarious time because as a man I admire greatly, Bill Ruane used to say, you know, first come the innovators, then the imitators, and then the swarming incompetence. And of course, it was just the people that started buying the sock puppet in 98 and 99 and quitting their jobs and saying, hey, it's so so easy to make money on the internet. I'm going to start a dot-com company. Um, And people destroyed decades of wealth by jumping onto that speculative bandwagon at the last moment. So an important part of client success is their ability to stay focused on their own financial plan. And the hardest thing for a financial advisor is when the external environment starts shaking the client's conviction that their plan is the right one. So when the world capital markets are inflamed, they're worried they're taking too much risk, they would give anything just to simply be back to zero, Mm -hmm. let alone building wealth at five or eight or 10% a year that they just wish they, they weren't losing. And so then they want to get out. They want to get out after the market's going down. Well, we're in the environment now when people want to get into various momentum categories after they've gone up a lot. And so a lot of wealth can be destroyed here. But at the same time, advisors can add so much value by trying to keep people focused. And that's one of the reasons, David, that we put together that group one, group two example is for an advisor to be able to look at that and share it with a client and say, look, these are great companies. You're right. There were lots of companies in the late 90s that were good companies. They might be overvalued by four or five fold. So, you know, they can go down 70 or 80 percent. And what are you going to do then? Hmm. A lot of the examples that we use in that group one and group two are companies that are not that differentiated. They're companies that haven't been through cycles. There may be the next Google in there. And I used those Google growth rates to give them the benefit of the doubt. But I would say the prospect of that portfolio is even worse because some of those companies are not going to succeed in any way like uh, is being currently priced in. So I think it's a time when advisors can really work and the behavior modification sort of like with the doctors to help tamp down the greed that is the risk now in the same way it was only a year and a half ago, David, that fear and tamping down the fear was the number one job of the advisor. Yeah. And we see that largely successful. I mean, advisors, I think, are, are, are do that by and large. Uh, and we saw that in the March downturn in the markets. Advisors largely kept their clients on track. They kept them from making the wrong moves. You know, it strikes me that it's more about, you know, wealth preservation than wealth accumulation, keeping the long-term plan on track, keeping them from doing something that would ultimately hurt their long-term prospects. Yeah. Uh, And everyone has to do it a different way, David. Isn't that true? You know, that uh, the best financial advisors understand that what works for this client to keep them, their temper temperament under control is different than what works for another client. And in some, they have to say, all right, well, we're going to create a separate portfolio where you can play with this speculative stuff and we'll yeah. wall it off. And other juggle, ones, knife, they, juggle knives over there. One of the great, it's one of the reasons I'm not very optimistic about robo investing as an independent alternative to advisors. I always say it's like a Fitbit watch. I go to my doctor and he tells me what I'm supposed to do. And it may be that a Fitbit helps give me a little jog to remind me to do something, but ultimately behavior modification 
is a human to human interaction. And it takes enormous subjectivity. It takes empathy. It takes emotional intelligence. It takes anticipation. It takes understanding what each individual client needs. And so I think the robo tools will become tools that the best advisors use successfully that make them more efficient. But I think the most valuable thing they do, which is modify behavior, save clients from themselves, create discipline, courage, and fortitude, and then tamp down the, the greed and sort of lust that happens in these sorts of times, that, that, is, a, that is fundamentally a human-to-human interaction. That's great. Uh, I think that's a good place to, to end it, Chris. We're at, we're pushing an hour. So, I, oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for your time. It's it's been fantastic. Where can advisors who aren't familiar with Davis Funds find you? Well, they certainly can come come to our website at, at, at Davis Funds and and they can look at our individual ETFs that we mentioned. And and David, you make the the time fly. I'm so so appreciative of, of your time. But just the, the Davis Funds is probably the easiest way to find us. Fantastic. All right, Chris Davis, CEO of Davis Funds. Thanks very much for joining us, and thank you all for listening. This has been the Inside ETFs podcast. 